Bible's handy. And uh, let's start in Ephesians uh, chapter number 5. And um, we'll look at several uh, verses as we go down through here. Um, begin in verse number 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, uh, of Christ and of God. And let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. I want to just point out real quickly in passing, in verse number 5, my son asked me a question this week, and it was not about this particular verse, but one very similar to it, where God speaks of the fact that these folks that are in this list uh, do not have the inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. And uh, the, the thing, of the, the truth of the matter is this, and some people would say, well, if that's the case and they've trusted Christ as their Savior, then does that mean they lose their salvation or they don't go to heaven? The answer to that is no, because when we get saved, we don't have our own righteousness, do we? Whose righteousness do we have? We have the righteousness of Christ. And so as if we're found in this condition to be uh, such and we do not have that righteousness, that means that we've not trusted Christ as our Savior. And when we get saved, uh, the old things are passed away, all things become new, and we take on us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us just as if we have never sinned. And when the Lord looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Brother Greg, are there other passages that talk about that? Well, absolutely. Jesus taught that unless your righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees, that you could not be saved. Well, he wasn't speaking about our outward actions or our works. He was saying we had to be perfect to get to heaven. Uh, the rich young ruler, Jesus spoke to him. He said, go and keep all the commandments. He said, I've done all that. He said, okay, then go out and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And he went away sorrowful. But I'm certain that if he had gone out and sold everything he had and came back to Christ, Christ would have given him something else. And the point he was trying to say was, you cannot do it. It takes the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone to save us. So you get to a verse like that, don't let it throw you. That's all it's talking about, is someone who's not had the righteousness of the Lord applied to their record yet. They've not been saved. He says in verse 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. Be ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye what? Light in the Lord. So he tells us right there, he kind of clarifies that. You know, those, that's the way you used to be. You used to be these things, but not, you're not that anymore. You're now a children of light. Why? Because we've put our trust in the Lord. As, uh, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. <coughs> For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. 
Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, I want to stop right there for a moment and understand Paul is speaking to those at Ephesus. And he says, listen, these people in verses 3 and 4 that are found in, in the sight of God as uh, being fornicators and unclean and uncovetous, uh, having covetousness, um, filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, and all these things, uh, whoremongers, unclean persons, covetous. He says, those people have not trusted me yet, but he says, you have trusted me. You used to be those things, but now you're in the light because you've put the, Lord, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us now that we're saved, we're not to continue in those things. We're to walk as children of light. So we understand this. He goes on to tell us, as we get down to verse 14, not only things that we ought not to be a part of, but he tells us some things that we ought to be working towards as a Christian. He says in verse number 14, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. Don't, don't be asleep. Don't, let, don't, let the, don't just go through life uh, breathing in the good air and blowing out the bad, and that's all you ever do for the Lord. He says, look around, understand the times and what you're living in. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And when we do that, he tells us in verse number 16, that as we look around, we see the situation. He says this, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Don't waste a moment of it. We live in a world that is a world of darkness, and God has given us light. Go around and shed that light everywhere you can. And, and, and don't dilly-dally about it. Get on with it. Redeem the time, he says. That, that dilly-dally is found in the Greek. He, he says, redeem the time. Get out there and do it. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is a very interesting section. So understand, um, he's talking about people who were, who were lost, who now have been saved. That we're to put off the old man. In fact, in verse number 1 of, five of chapter 5, he says that we're to be followers of God as dear children now. We no longer follow after the flesh, but we're to walk in the Spirit. So everybody understand where we're at in the passage at this point. We're to put off the old man. We're to walk circumspectly. We're to redeem the time. We're to put diligence and effort and faith into our, our living our life for the Lord now. Now he tells us in verse number 18, "...and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess." But be filled with the Spirit. And we've preached on being filled with the Spirit before. We're not going to make our message expressly on that. Suffice to say this, that it ought to be the heart's desire of every Christian that we have the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That there be a, a, a yieldedness to His leading. That there be an openness. That there be a self-examination to find are there things that I'm doing that are quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit because I don't want to do anything that would cause the power of the Holy Spirit that longs to rest upon me for service to be quenched. I don't want that. I don't want the Spirit to uh, that, that, that would be enabled to help me work and labor and, and be fruitful for God to be quenched or grieved. I don't want to have that. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to have His, His filling, His aid on my life. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. 
giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse number 21, if you're in the habit of write, uh, underlining or writing things in your Bible, could I ask you this morning to underline the very first word of verse number 21? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, underline this word, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is, and underline this word, it's a different one. You know how we know it's different? It uses different letters, okay? It's a different word. Okay, underline subject, okay? Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones for this cause, Shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh? This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Very important verse, verse number 32. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. We may go a little bit further into chapter 6 here in just a few moments. This last week, we've had, I've had a number of opportunities, several opportunities to have to address the issue of submission or subjection. And there is a difference between the two that are very, very specific, and I want us to understand this. Uh, we're going to be teaching here on a relationship between a husband and wife, but I want you to, to hang on to your seats there. Some of you men are probably like, all right, preacher, go get her. <laughs> and some of you ladies are like, oh boy, here we go with the whole submit thing again. Hang on there because there is a much, much deeper spiritual truth that is absolutely vital in this passage. I was talking with someone this week, and, and many of you, most of you know, I think at this point, that uh, I am divorced as a pastor. I've had some people that have been critical of that, some that say, well, that's okay. <clears throat> in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and I think it would be good for you to see this. In 1 Timothy chapter number 3, the Bible says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Boy, that's a... That's a characteristic that I don't know that any pastor meets. 
In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. If any pastor says that he meets that, he's lying. Why would Paul say must be? If you'll take a moment to look at this list all the way through, everything on this list is dealing with the character of the man being considered for the position. So is he noted as being a man who is blameless by those that are without? Do they look at him and say, well, you know, he's, he doesn't have a whole lot to blame? Does that mean he's perfect and sinless? No, not at all. Are there things that he could be blamed for? Absolutely. But his character is such that he has the reputation of being above reproach, uh, having that blamelessness to him. Again, dealing with the husband of one wife. I, I've had some people ask this question, and I've, I've had to ask this question when I was considering this. Can a pastor pastor without having a wife? And some people hold to that. They say, no, the Bible says he must be the husband of one wife, so he has to have a wife. Well, okay, let's, let's take that for a moment and let's look down a few more verses. He also has to have children. And not just one child, but he has to have more than one child because it uses the plural, doesn't it? So what about a man who's married but doesn't have children? Is he allowed to pastor? So I don't know that the requirement of having a wife is the minimum. I believe, again, it's dealing with the man's character. Is he the kind of person that says, I love my wife with all of my heart. There is no other. It's dealing with his character. My wife is precious to me. I'm going to treat her the way that Ephesians chapter number 5 says I'm to treat her. Again, dealing with his character. Getting on down, verse number 3, Yet not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler or covetous. Now notice this, verse number 4, One that ruleth well his own house, having his wife in subjection. Is that, your, is that your King James Bible? It's not mine either. In fact, you won't find in Scripture where a husband is to subjugate his wife. He is to do that with his children. He's to rear them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He's to have authority over them and to enforce that authority uh, by discipline, by biblical discipline. You won't find that given as far as the relationship of a husband to a wife. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he care for the church of God? And so I had uh, a discussion even this week, someone that brought up, well, uh, if a man has is divorced and his wife has left, then has he ruled well his own house? Okay, well, let's hold that for a moment. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter number 50. Again, let's, let's see what does the Bible say. Can we, can we do that this morning instead of what pastor thinks? Let's just see what does the Bible say. If he, or Isaiah chapter number 50 and verse number 1. Thus saith the Lord. Now, by the way, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Who is he speaking to? Israel. His, his children. Let me put it this way, in the relationship in the context of the verse, this is the bride of Christ. So it speaks of here, and that's the relationship that he uses in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of 
your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away. Wait a minute. Christ has put away his spiritual bride? Well, what for? Was he not a good enough husband? Was he not ruling well his own house? That's not why he put her away. Look what it says. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. I don't think any of us would sit here today and say that Christ was certainly not a good husband to his bride. But for the hardness of her heart, she had a free will in the matter, didn't she? Israel had a free will in the matter. And while God may have been the perfect husband to her, if you will, she chose willingly to leave that. Now let's come back to Ephesians chapter 5, because this is very, very important. And by the way, I know some of you probably are sitting here thinking right now, okay, Brother Greg's trying to teach on this so that people don't think about what his relationship is or they don't think there's anything wrong with his relationship. That is not at all the reason, and when we get to the end of the message, you'll see why. I want you to notice the truth of the passage because it's vitally important for you and I. All right, coming back to Ephesians chapter number 5, let's take a look here now. Verse number 21. This is, again, part of this list of things that Christians ought to be doing. Just like we're supposed to be walking circumspectly, we're supposed to be redeeming the time, we're supposed to be understanding what the will of the Lord is, we're to be filled with the Spirit. Just like those things, we are also to be submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. As Christian brothers and sisters, we are to yield ourselves to the authority, and in this case, the authority is God. In verse number 22, wives, submit yourselves. Who is he speaking to here? Who is he addressing? Wives. Is he, is he telling the husbands, uh, husbands, make sure your wives submit? <laughs> There are Baptist preachers that will get up today and say, I have to teach my wife and I have to make sure she knows she has to submit to me. Never my position to do that. God doesn't tell me to do that. God instructs the wife. And let me say it, ladies, unless you think you're off the hook because dad, because the husband didn't say you have to submit. More importantly, God said. And that's a higher authority than your husband. Is it not? That we are to submit. So he's addressing wives here. And he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And he uses the word submit. The word submit is always used in conjunction with one who is under authority already and is giving their will to the authority. And it is an act of the will. It is not an act that is enforced or subjugated. If we use the word subject, if we were to say, okay, husbands, you are to subject your wives under this, then it would be the authoritarian that is taking the action to forcefully require the submission. Do you see the difference here? Now, that's very important. As we look down through here, he says, there, uh, uh, verse, wives, verse number 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. What if they don't? 
Is it the husband's fault? Wife's fault. Who's the one responsible for submitting? The wife. Okay? Bear with me. Don't, don't, don't go crazy on me yet here. Verse number 23. For the husband is the what? Head of the wife. Or even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so hold, hold your place there for a moment. We're going to go look at another verse all the way back in the book of Genesis. And let's see where all this began. Let's see how this, how this came to pass. Genesis chapter number 3. And verse number 16. God is expressing the judgments for their sin. And to Eve, he says in verse number, let's go to verse 15, get the context. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Who is he speaking to here? Who? To the wife, isn't he? He's saying, your husband is going to be the ruler, the authority over you. He is not telling the husband that you are to rule with a fist of iron your wife. In fact, that's not at all what he tells us to do with our wives, is it? Let's go back and see what it says here in verse number, uh, chapter, Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 23. Because after Christ addresses the wife under the inspiration of Scripture in Paul's writing, he then goes on to address the husband. husband uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let wives... Be so to their own husbands and everything. Some people look at that and say, okay, there's where the husband has to bring her under subjection. No, no. Paul is telling the wife to be subject to the authority that God has given. And again, he is speaking to the wife. So let the wife be. Is that not what it's saying here? So submission is a willing expression to be subject to the authority that is placed over us. It's an act of the will. We come back to verse number 25, and God speaks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and be sure that they are subject. Husbands, love your wives and make sure that you rule them. No, it says husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, is the husband the authority? Absolutely. As much as Christ is the authority over our church, the husband is the authority of the home. But at no point does Christ punish us or strike us dead or cut us off uh, and, and say, you will obey me or else. He leaves it up to their will and of their own desire, of their own will. Then in Isaiah, he said, because you have chosen this, I've put you away. Aren't you glad it was only for a season there? He's going to bring Israel back one day, and we look forward to that day. But he does write a bill of divorcement to her. He does say you've got to, you've got to go your own way. 
Now, verse number 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without and without blemish. Now, in Sunday school, we're studying the tabernacle. And God often uses uh, pictures of relationships, pictures of things that he establishes on this earth to help us understand the principles of Scripture in the New Testament or things that are so in heaven. It's interesting to me that in Ephesians chapter number 5 and chapter number 6, he deals with three relationships. He deals with the relationship of a husband and a wife. He deals with the relationship of parents and children. And he deals with the relationship of a master and a servant. Can I tell you that we have all three of those relationships with him? Now, all three of those apply to us. All three of them are to picture some things that have a deeper spiritual implication. So Christ certainly desires for us to follow Him willfully and to submit to Him. But does He force us to? Does He not give us free will to choose? Absolutely. Now, we'll pay the price for our choice, won't we? But He doesn't force us. He doesn't strike us dead the moment we don't do what His authority is over us. He continues to love us, doesn't He? Now, as we get down here, it says in verse number uh, 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. What if she's not submissive? What am I to do? Love her and cherish her. That's my responsibility. That's what I give an account to God for. What is she supposed to do? She submit. That's what she gives an account to God for. Do you see the difference here? There's a difference between submission and subjection. If I'm going to say you do it or else, there's no longer free will and there is no longer reciprocal love in the home. Verse number 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. And you say, Brother Greg, that's been a great lesson of Scripture. And, okay, I can see how that, yes, if a wife leaves her husband, that was her not submitting. That's not necessarily that the man didn't rule well his own house. Now, there are occasions where that could be the case. But it doesn't have to be the case. A woman can leave of her own free will regardless of whether the man ruled well or did not rule well. A woman can leave of her own free choice whether the husband was doing all that he could to be a husband to her or whether he was not. But I want you to notice all of this lesson has been taught for this one verse. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ And the what? All of this instruction that Paul gave about husbands and wives, it's not even really about that, he says. What it's about is the relationship of Christ and the church. So here's the message. Are we submitted to Him?
some of us feel like we are subjugated to Him. Well, I have to do it because God's making me. No, 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 no. That was never the intent. The intent was for me to look at His authority and say, I love Him. Sarah called Abraham Lord. Not because Abraham said, if you don't, woman, I'm kicking you out. You're done. But because she so reverenced him and loved him that of her will, she said, I'm going to submit to him. We as God's people are never to have the motive of obedience to be, I have to. God is forcing me to do this. It ought always to be. Boy, I love him so much. And if he says it, oh, I want to do it. Because I know it pleases him. By the way, that's the same relationship that a husband and wife ought to have. So again, we come back to these things. And these relationships that Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter number 5 are so vitally important for us to understand our side of the relationship with Christ. I am to be to Christ the way a wife is to be to her husband. And so are you. I am to be to Christ the way that children are to a parent. And I am to be to Christ the way servants are to a master. Maybe one of these days we'll get to teach on the other two relationships as well. But I want us to understand this truth. I've heard so many couples misunderstand the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. I've seen so many couples that the man grits his teeth and says, Pastor, you need to tell her she's got to submit to me. No, 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 no. He has completely missed it. Her submission is of her will to him. Not his domineering over her. Men, we're to love them and to cherish them. You say, how much am I to love them and cherish them? As much as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When the Titanic sank a little over a hundred years ago, the survivors that were rescued were interviewed, and one reporter asked one of the stewards that had manned a lifeboat, he said, I understand that during the time of the sinking of the Titanic, the cry on the deck was women and children first. The steward was asked this question. He said, sir, was that the law of the captain or the law of the sea? And the steward said, sir, that's just simply the law of nature. God designed us this way. God built us this way. God created us this way. That husbands and men are to care for and to cherish and to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And men on the Titanic would kiss their wives and daughters, place them on a lifeboat, and go back to a death that they knew was certain. 
By the way, a little over 2,000 years ago, Christ hung on a cross and loved me and rescued me and went to a death that was certain. That's the way we're to love our, our families, fellas. Can I tell you this? That's the way we're to love God. In our church, we need to learn to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all our minds. And I know we know this. I'm preaching to the choir this morning probably in this, in this service. Because I think every one of us has a desire to love God. Have you ever thought this, that as much as we love Him, we can always love Him more? I look at how much my heart overflows sometimes. I get so excited, I get so overwhelmed and overflowing sometimes at how much I love the Lord. And then I realize I really haven't even scratched the surface yet. There's so much more that could be done. There's so much more I could have, I could yield myself to His authority in, in my life. That for some reason I like to have my own will and my own way in. Oh, that we would learn to submit to the authority of Christ. Not to have Him come and force it upon us. But that we would willingly and of our own free will say, I will yield to your authority. Oh, that we would learn to do this. And uh, we may teach a little further on marriage and some things like that in the near future. There's some other things that have been heavy on my heart recently that sometimes we misunderstand from Scripture. But this morning I wanted us to understand how this so easily pictures our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not be like Israel, who by the hardness of our hearts, God turns from us and says, you've chosen that. Let's continue to follow after Him with all of our hearts. Okay? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. My hope and my prayer is that everybody here today has trusted Christ as their Savior. And if you're here today and you say, Brother Greg, I don't know if I died right now, that I'd go to heaven. I don't know that.